The Lord be with you. A couple of quick notes while you're calm, while you're quieting down. Uh, the the I mentioned it after church. Our new member class is starting September 9th. So if you're looking to join the church, uh, we kind of have everybody go through the new member class. Uh, whether they're lifelong Lutherans or brand new to the faith, for a variety of reasons, most I mean, it's, uh, to oversimplify it, even if you grew up in a Lutheran church, as we all kind of see, there's there's different kinds of Lutheran, there's different kinds of levels of catechesis, um, and different levels of learning, perhaps, and, and and all of us find ourselves in different places of learning throughout our life. So I like to kind of be very clear about what we're about as a church to our new members as they're coming as they're coming in. Also, since it's a relatively large church, it's nice to have people getting to know one another within the church. Um, so these new members kind of come in as a cohort and they get to know each other um, in that like 10 weeks or so we have that class. This, this year will be on Saturday morning. We're always bumping it around to see what might work better for people. So uh, there will be childcare available. Um, so if you, it's open to our members as well. From time to time, we have members come through that class. So if you're looking for a Bible study on uh, Saturdays, uh, starting in September 9th, jump in. I mentioned Pastor Bartons is at the Milwaukee Convention, the, L- the LCMS National Convention. Big deal. Uh, the biggest deal at the convention this year is the, con- the governance of the Concordia system. Um, as we, if, you, if you follow the conversation at all, in, in recent decade or so, we've, or I guess Bronxville, Concordia Bronxville closed, Concordia, Concordia Selma closed, Concordia Portland closed, and then now there's like these rumblings of wokeism at the, at the administrative level at Mequon, and rumblings of wokeism at the faculty level, not the administration level of Concordia Chicago. Um, so there's like trying to, the, the Senate is trying to fix it as best they can, as, as, as complicated as it is to oversimplify it. So there's a bunch of resolutions on the floor, um, and if you've ever been to a convention, it's like very tedious and lengthy, but they, everybody takes it seriously and trying to do the best they can for the church, so we keep them in our prayers. Um, a lot of cool stuff happens, too, like they recognize fellowship with other like global church bodies, like a bunch of, it'll be like some Lutheran church in some country you didn't know existed until the motion. And now they've got a Lutheran church and they want to be in fellowship with us. At the international level, tons of Lutherans are in fellowship, are wanting to be in fellowship with Missouri Synod because what's happening is the, the liberal churches are just being more and more open about their liberalness. And so other church bodies are like, well, we're not that. And so they're looking for, oh, they realize every, we believe everything that Missouri believes. And then we've got the, um, we've got the, financial backing currently, it won't always be this way probably, but we've got a publishing house, we've got money in our churches. What we're able to do is like pack up a, a suitcase of, of catechisms and fly over to Kenya and they just tear it up. They're so happy to have it. Um, so, we're, so it's cool to see what's happening at the international level. Anyway, um, one quick practical note. Uh, the uh, hymn of the day today, which is was perfectly matched to our to our epistle lesson from God can nothing move me, um, looks at the Christian life of suffering, and a lot of our hymns are this way, especially in like the mid 700s section. You get a lot of Paul Gerhard hymns. Have you heard that name, Paul Gerhard? Um, Paul Gerhard was a pastor during the Thirty Years' War. He lost his, like he buried every member of his family, including his wife and multiple children. He had to watch them all suffer and die of various things. And yet he writes these hymns that confess the gospel joy that the Christian has, even in the face of suffering. Uh, the hymn of the day today is not by Gerhard, but it's of a similar, of a similar nature, where he kind of like confessing the biblical truths about how we understand suffering in our Christian life. Um, you might have noticed that one stanza got cut out of that, and I get a lot of pushback on, on uh, why we select the stanzas that we select from the hymn. So we'll really quick address that. Um, in the back, the, 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 the back room, imagine a smoke-filled room where there's lots of like, you know, sketchy stuff happening. It's, it's me and Cantor and the other pastors. <laughs> Tom Mueller's there. And we're like, so my thing is, I want to keep services to an hour. Not everybody cares, but I want you to hold Sadie for an hour. <laughs> then you'll realize, ah, an hour is kind of, 
I can do an hour. Something clicks psychologically in you guys as I watch it. Around that one hour mark, your tolerance level starts to shift. And what happens is hymns, like one stanza here and there, in length of intro, length of readings, various things in the service, you're willing to tolerate them to a point. 10.05, 10.05, but all of a sudden 10.10 rolls around and something starts to happen and your critique of the general service and your tolerance for it. And then announcements, and you're just like, all right, I'm ready to go. And then you say, well, let's not stick around for Bible class. We got better stuff to do. Then you're out the door, so you're like fatigued. So we try to negotiate the service down to close to hopefully an hour, and then uh, our, pre- our sermons and our prayers can kind of flex. So um, like today, is, we shoot for like 10 to 15 minute sermons. Um, so we, we end up sitting down with these hymns, and we're like, all right, there's so many great hymns, so many great stanzas. But honestly, if you were to take this this hymn, like the hymn of the day today, which we're saying six, six of the seven stanzas, in the original German, it's probably 15 stanzas long. Most of the hymns that we sing in their original languages are significantly longer. So we're already making a, we're already making, made edited decisions to get them into the hymnal. And then we kind of make further decisions. And then I'm also mindful that we're asking you to stand for the hymn of the day. So it's like seven stanzas, oh. So psychologically, if you looked at the hymn of the day page and there were like all seven stanzas there, the difference in six and seven still kind of significant psychologically. If for you saying, I hate standing, I hate singing, this is dumb, I'm out, to just singing and not thinking about it. So we're trying to strike that balance as much as possible without pushing you over the edge. That makes sense? But if you do have critiques um, and c- complaints, take them to Pastor Schumacher. You'll get an email response back <laughs> that he's on sabbatical. <laughs> no, no, we, 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 try to, we try to keep a com- compromise where, where we can, but be faithful uh, as we should. Okay, so uh, today's topic is suffering in the Christian life. You got a hand out there in front of you, you can grab on your way in. And um, this topic was chosen for a variety of reasons. A new, a new statistic came out, my, my first point on the handout actually, that the, the exist, the, just the existence of suffering in general is always one of the top reasons for why an atheist says that they're atheist. It's not necessarily the reason why they're atheist. There's going to be a manifold reasons for that, but often a response would be, even in my own, the day Dave Bodenstab died and one of his best friends was there, and we, he, was, he just told me straight up he was an atheist, and we got to talking about why, and then he mentioned Dave's circumstance. He jumped right to it. How could a loving God let this happen to Dave, right? So the existence of suffering is often um, grabbed by uh, atheists, but then also among Christians, causes of doubt, like when there's surveys done by like Barna Group and others, like what, is, what are the chief causes of doubt in your, in your faith life as a Christian in the world? Uh, 24% or 30% of Christians said suffering was like the main, the main thing. Number, what do you think number two would be? Long church services. Long church services? Uh, it's actually related. Uh, some kind of a hypocrisy within the church. Hypocrites, or, or just a, an, ex, an expectation that within Christianity there wouldn't be this fight that we have in our church. So a, a, bad, a bad experience in a particular church because of the, what they call hypocrisy, and that's, that's led them to somehow doubt the faith. And, um, obviously, that's, that's a different issue for a different day, but for today, um, suffering. So uh, there's some. St- so I think 30% was the number of, of atheists who had said that was their number one reason for why they're uh, unbelieving. I asked the youth last week what their favorite sectional topics were at Higher Things, and one of them was on suffering. And then last week I asked the youth, the youths, what I should talk about today, and, and the consensus was suffering. So here we are. So if you don't like the topic, blame the kids. <laughs> why would the Christian doubt? Maybe, maybe before I even start. I think it's, it's helpful to get clear in our mind why we suffer at all. Obviously, it's easy answer. Why is there suffering at all? Sin in the world. So the cause of our 
of our suffering in this life is a result of Adam and Eve eating the fruit and then sin breaking in, death entering into the world, and then death actually manifesting itself not purely as, not, not exclusively as just my heart stopping its beating, but actually death breaks in in all these ways throughout my life as we're experiencing sickness, as we're experiencing any kind of despair and suffering and loss. These are all tied to this curse of, of sin and our death. Um, and what, what is suffering? So we know the why, and now the what of suffering is, what, I mean, what would you say, think through, if you're defining suffering and trying to kind of capture it all under one umbrella, what would you, what would you think? So pain, that's probably where I go first, but as we learned from Rambo, no pain, no, is that Rambo or something? So Stallone in some movie, I'm sure said that. Um, so pain isn't always bad. Have you ever been sore? I don't know why this is keep happening, I'm sorry. Have you ever had a good workout, you know? And your chest is sore from push-ups? It hurts? Is that bad? No. Pain isn't bad. Not always. What makes, we, we jump to pain because it's actually significant pain that we don't want, that we don't deem helpful. So I think suffering in general is kind of like something is occurring that we don't, we don't want to occur. <laughs> uh, we defined what is good and pleasurable, uh, enjoyable for me. I define that. I know what that looks like and feels like. And then something else happens other than that. So it's not just limited to pain as far as physical pain, but there's, I mean, that, that touches emotional pain and, and other kinds of suffering as well, right? Hence all the pain and suffering lawsuits that the guy didn't get hurt, right? But it's pain and suffering. It's, it's this pain and suffering because he had an expectation that he put all of his chips into and it didn't turn out that way. And so there's despair. So that's the what of suffering. So we recognize that there's sin in the world that, that, breaks, that breaks in throughout my life. And, um, and what that suffering is, is when things aren't going the way that I hoped they would go. Now, why, my, my, I guess my big question of the first section there, why would the Christian doubt? Why would suffering bring the Christian to a point of doubt? And why would we think God would not allow that? Because he loves us. So we're hinging our whole logic, and it lines up. I mean, we're, we're like, okay, logically, God loves me. God is love. He, is, he said it himself. He said, I'm his tre- today's gospel. I, I'm his treasure possession. He loves me. Um, but what's the other key thing? I love a lot of people that they don't get mad at or doubt my existence just because I can't take away their cancer. Why do we get mad at God or doubt God's existence? Because he's actually all-powerful, the omnipotent thing. So he not only loves me, allegedly, but he also, allegedly, has the power to solve the problem, which we've seen Jesus do. Jesus can't walk into a room without casting out demons and healing diseases, and there's like problems come running to him. So it's obvious he has the power to take away whatever the suffering is, and then he loves us, and then... When I face suffering in my life, I think that, well, what's messed up in the formula is God isn't acting like I want him to act. If I were God, I would do things differently, right? Is that not ultimately at the root of our our concerns? What about a break of trust? A break of trust? Think about it this way. You're a servant, you're you're one of his servants, you're being serving in the church, you're doing everything that's going to happen to you. Good. So the, I don't know if I would go with trust as much as um, what Bill is saying is the, um, I've done, I've, it's, it's, it's almost like there was an agreement. There was an agreement with me and God that I'm going to come to church and be faithful and serve and, and give a bunch of my income to the church and pray and do devotions every day. And because I did this, 
That's the equivalent of me putting the $1.50 in the vending machine and hitting A7 for a Snickers bar, right? Good choice. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of a similar thing, right? So it's like I, I think there was, this, there, was a, there was a deal with the vending machine. I put in $1.50, give me a Snickers bar. With God, I do this thing. Obviously, I'm not talking about salvation here. Obviously, we can't be saved by our works. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about temporal suffering. And because I've been faithful and done all these things and God hasn't opened the floodgates of blessing upon me or taken away the suffering, then I start to doubt. That gets at major misunderstanding in the way, and we see it actually all over the place in American Christianity today. Um, Joel Osteen is the face of this problem. We call it the theology of glory. That um, it's like if you have a neighbor who's, who's like going through a lot of hard times. We're talking like lost his job, um, spouse left him, like all these problems are happening. And then you're like, this guy needs Jesus. Now you and I are thinking well, he needs Jesus because he's actually like, he's despairing, he's lost, he's floating around this crazy tumultuous world and he's got no solid rock to hold on to during the storms. But he might think that you want him to have Jesus because if you give him this pill, it's gonna do what? It's gonna fix all the problems. It's gonna take away the disease. It's gonna, the job, if you just try Christianity, um, who's the guy, Glenn Beck? You know that guy's? Is that, is he still out there? I don't know. He's a Mormon. And this is actually Mormonism. So if you listen to Glenn Beck talk about this, it comes across the same way. That he like, he had all these problems in his life and then he, he'll say he found Jesus, which is a different Jesus. The Mormons have a different Jesus. But then all of, all of a sudden he got the job that he was hoping to get. The money kind of came rolling in. The blessings came rolling in. Um, and that's this theology of glory that has God as the vending machine that if I'm faithful, then he's going to bless me. That's Joel Osteen. God wants to bless you today. Just get out of the way. <laughs> you know? So the, if that's our expectation from God, then when the blessings don't come out, we doubt his love for us, doubt his existence, or just get mad at him. Um, I think anger at God is, is actually biblical. When we look at the Psalms, these are constantly crying out to God, why? How long, O oh Lord? Why are you allowing this thing? When, when will you stop the suffering? When will you stop my enemies? So um, anger toward God, right, right anger toward God is not evidence of unbelief because you can't get mad at a God you don't believe in, right? So anger with God because of, my disagreeing with his wisdom in allowing suffering is not evidence of unfaith, but it's, it's still evidence of faith, right? It's frustrated that, that God, if you, God, I know you said you love me. I just don't understand why this, you know? And to, over, to oversimplify it, it's the child who says, I, Dad, I know you said you love me. I don't understand why I can't eat ice cream for breakfast. Now, that's an easy one for us to look at. So obviously, we know why she can't have ice cream for breakfast. Well, she doesn't understand that necessarily. She's not there yet. So, so too for us, whenever we don't get the blessing that we're hoping for or, don't, or aren't spared from the suffering. Dad, why do I need to get the, the shot for tetanus? He stepped on a nail in the backyard or something, and we got to take it to the doctor, and they're going to jab this. Have you ever put alcohol on a child's open wound? Apparently, you can, you're not supposed to do that. My mom did it to me. I turned out fine. So I did it to the kids once. Manny told me there's better ways to solve the problem. But, but why did I do that? I mean, set aside the illogicality of, of why I did that, what I did, but like... Ultimately, I didn't want what to, ha what to happen? Infection. Infection. So there needed, to be, there needed to be pain. I'm like, Everly, the, that pain that you feel, is the, that's the feeling of all the germs dying. <laughs> didn't work, but that was my strategy. Uh, but like that, so the, there's a way of seeing pain as a helpful thing, but we can't necessarily always comprehend it. 
Um, why would an atheist be hardened in his unbelief in the face of suffering? We kind of already went down the same logic. If God, if God existed and he is actually loving, then why would he allow for child leukemia? And it's a fair question. It's much easier for us to consider in the abstract until there's actually a kid in your, in your church or in your family who's got cancer. And in, my, in my home church in Mississippi, the, the kid, I mean, there's only like 50 people at that church. So the odds are very small. One of, the, one of the few kids, they just found bone cancer in his leg and it's like metastasized. They're having to amputate his leg on the off chance that it might help slow the spread. And just like, this kid's like nine years old. So his parents are like having this conversation with him. We're gonna, they're gonna, the doctor's gonna take your leg off, sweetie. And there's like, how? You're telling me, God, you can't stop this? Right? Now, honestly, death comes to all of us. Suffering does break into all of our lives. But isn't it weird how we expect it at a certain point? So I've talked to many of you, you've lost a loved one. And then you'll say to me, well, she was 98 and she had been suffering for a long time. And so... We, find, we try to find a silver lining in the death of, well, like, to pick on Dave again. Um, so Dave, toward the end, I mean, we're all of us who are kind of suffering along with them. We're like, Lord, just call him home. This isn't going well. So we can rejoice in a way in his suffering. But it's different for like the seven-year-old who gets leukemia, right? Why, God, right? So we see the logic behind the, behind the pain and the, the, and, and the causes of doubt, how could a loving God allow suffering? So just reading through my points here. When suffering comes, it means there's no God. God's not all-powerful or God's not loving or he doesn't love me. That's what, I'm con- that's what I'd conclude in the face of suffering. When we see a problem like cancer, we want to stop it. And we think that we would if I were God. We get frustrated, though, that we can't stop the cancer. And then we think that God, I I can't stop the cancer, but God has the power to stop it. So he should stop it because I would stop it if I were him. But then he doesn't. He doesn't act in the way that we think we would if we were him. And so we get angry, frustrated with God, doubt his existence, um, deny his love for us and, and so forth. So to go back, and we're going to look at a bunch of Bible verses that speak to suffering and then make a few concluding points. But the, the, where we started, I think, is the most helpful way that I engage with suffering. Just as I was talking to Dave's atheist friend a couple months ago, the problem, the reason for suffering is what? Sin. So the answer, Jesus answers the problem. He solves the, the problem. So we see our suffering and we think we want God to take our suffering away. But the suffering is just a fruit of the deeper tree, right? So the suffering that we're facing is ultimately a result of our sin. And Jesus is after solving the sin problem. That's why in his earthly ministry, he like, he kept like, he would delay. He didn't want word to get out that he was doing these miracles. He'd tell people like, don't tell everybody I did this because if you do, uh, it's going to kind of delay the, it's going to delay the cross or somehow get in the way of this thing or bring their, bring, bring their cross on prematurely when I haven't taught the word enough yet. So he's really concerned about, about that. If Jesus wanted to, oh, so next, next Sunday's gospel lesson, the feeding of the 5,000. Remember he feeds the five, which is 5,000 men plus women and children. So it could have been like more like 15 to 20,000. He feeds them all. And then immediately, what do they decide to do? They want him to be their bread king. So we just keep Jesus here. And Jesus is a handy, a handy thing to have in your house, right? So you don't need to put alcohol in your kid's open wound. You can just have them touch Jesus. You don't need to go to the grocery store. You just ask Jesus. So this is Jesus solving all of our temporal needs and just overlooking the eternal thing. Jesus is really, he's, he's, he's only interested in the eternal thing. He's trying to fix that. And along the way, the, the, the life is just breaking in. That's why he keeps feeding the hungry and healing the sick. Because the resurrected life is breaking through all along the way, but he's after solving the problem of death. And the only way to do that is, is on the cross. By, by taking away sin. That's the start. 
So when someone complains that I don't understand how a loving God could allow, could allow suffering, and we, we just, well, there's a sinful world. If that's your place to go in response to that argument, good. But push it harder, because what you're trying to say is, there is, there is sin in the world because of sin, and Jesus solved that problem on the cross. Jesus does love us by solving the eternal problem of sin so that I don't have to suffer in this body in this way eternally. So here's a few, a, a bunch of just scriptural passages on suffering and they give us some different perspectives. First Peter 4, uh, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as there's something strange happening to you. So First Peter 4, Peter's writing to a persecuted church. So when he says fiery trial, he doesn't mean sunburn. He means what? being burned at the stake. Don't be surprised as if something strange were happening to you. What? When I suffer, I'm like, okay, this isn't, I'm, I'm, we're all kind of surprised by suffering. We all think this shouldn't be happening to me, at least not now or whatever. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice, also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So Peter's talking about not being surprised, but almost having an expectation of suffering. And this is suffering for his name, not just you know, having a toothache or something, but it's actually, this would be in the case of persecution. When persecution comes, don't be surprised, but actually rejoice in it and see it as opportunity for God's glory to break through. Similarly uh, to Roman, similar to Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, we've talked about many times. As for it was sown on rocky ground, remember the four different soils that are cast? This is a couple weeks ago, gospel lesson. The, the seed that was sown on rocky ground, what did it do? It sprouted up quickly, but then what happened? It died. Why did it die? It says the sun, it scorched it. And then Jesus, when he's, he rounds, there's like a, four verses in the middle of something happening. And then Jesus, they come to Jesus, ask him, tell us about the parable of the sower. And he gives this, verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So it's a person who, who quickly rejoices in God's word, has quick, quick to come to faith, excited about it. And then something bad happened. This, this says tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. So that's, that is both physical persecution from, let's say, the hand of the government who's persecuting us, but who also is incentivized to bring tribulation because of our faith in God's word? The devil. So, so as I'm facing tribulation or persecution, and this, is, this actually is a good picture of this is when Jesus... Jesus, um, we, we get radio silence on the devil in the Bible. From creation, the devil is there at creation. And then obviously the devil's active, but you don't see him. You see him talking to Job. So he's like trying to get, trying to get Job condemned and, and bring trials to Job. And then we, we don't see him again, even in the New Testament, until after what? Jesus is baptized. So Jesus is baptized and immediately he's, he's brought out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Luther talks about the Christian baptism as having a target on our back for the, for the devil who brings this tribulation and persecution. He's incentivized to, to target Christians in the faith because he's trying to undo it. So for the Christian who doesn't have depth of root, the son of suffering comes up and scorches it. So I've talked to people before, you've probably seen them in your life, like a person who like, maybe they haven't been a Christian before or they haven't been a Christian since they're little kids and they hear the gospel, they get really super duper excited. This is so great. I'm always like Debbie Downer. I'm always like, now you should keep in mind that the joy that you're feeling now, the devil's gonna wanna take that away from you. So when bad stuff happens, I'm not saying it will or that I want it to, but when bad stuff happens, know that all this stuff is still true about Jesus' love for you and his forgiveness for you. So that when the trials come, don't let that undo all these great things. 
So you almost have to, as a Christian, we have to have this expectation. Now, what does, I asked Luke Fermidig, I think it was this last week. I said, when suffering comes, no, what, what does a plant need to, to survive? Water and sunlight. That's it. What killed the plant? Sunlight. Now, this is interesting because I was visiting Bruce uh, up at his nursing home couple last week or something. And as I'm walking down the hallway, there's a sun or a, uh, a picture of a rainbow. Not, not in the way that you think. There's a, there's a, pretty, a, a, deli- a prettily, rightly placed rainbow. And it said, without rain, there would be no rainbows. Without, we have to kind of go through storms to have rainbows. But he's in a secular, state-run nursing home. So obviously, what it has in mind is not what we would kind of fill in there. It's trying to say, you know, bad stuff happens and maybe good stuff can come out of it. You have to kind of go through trials, but then we're strengthened by it. As Christians, we can push that further and say God actually uses the sun to grow the plant. And what's the, what's the analogy? He uses what? He uses our suffering to do what? To make us stronger. So have you noticed that trees that are like, as they, why do, why do roots, why do trees roots, why are you finding roots in your backyard, but the closest tree is like three houses down? Because the trees are, they're getting ready, they're, they're needed, they're going deep and wide so that when there's a drought, they'll be, they'll be okay. So too for us with faith, right? So the Lord... The Lord uses suffering to, to, to grow our roots deep and wide. And we grow our roots deep and wide as we hear God's word so that when suffering comes, we endure the storms. Um, but those who don't have the depth of root, the sun can pop out and scorch. There's a hand over here, yeah. To flourish. Well, it's, it's the same. I mean, unfortunately, it didn't, it didn't last too long, but like after 9 11, we saw this huge surge in church attendance. Same with after COVID. Like, you should have seen like our online viewership. Like during, like it happened during Lent and like during Lent we had like midweek services, we're getting like hundreds of views. I couldn't pay a hundred people to come to midweek services in person. <laughs> uh, but midweek services in Lent, we had like hundreds of people. So like there's this, we recognize, we're reminded of our mortality and the suffering that we're facing is kind of for, is drawing us toward the, the solution to the problem of sin. Good, John 16. Uh, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace and uh, that you may have peace, period. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He doesn't say, if you're in me, you won't have tribulation. Because that's the preaching of prosperity gospel. If you just believe enough, then bad stuff won't happen. Jesus is saying, in the world, you will have tribulation, but don't worry, I've solved that problem. Romans 8, today's epistle, all things work together for good. Let me get some stuff up, flip over your flip over your sheet to the rest of that rest of that passage there that if God is for us who can be against us who can bring a charge against us watch verse 35 who shall separate us from the love of Christ so they think that when these problems come tribulation distress persecution famine nakedness dangerous sword it seems to sever us away from God's love it seems to be evidence that God does not love us so Paul's saying no these things aren't going to separate you from love from the love of God we're more than conquerors in these things. Uh, how can God be loving and allow suffering? This is very simple. And, and for me, this is like one of my quick go-to tools for, for thinking through Christian suffering. John 3.16, which many, many people know. I would argue hopefully every Christian knows John 3.16. And many non-Christians know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For God so loved the world is not, I know I've said this before, it's not saying God really, really, really loved the world. God does really, really love the world, but that's not what he's saying here. The Greek is clear. It's not a, it's not a modifier to, to show how great his love is. It says God loves the world in this particular way. That's what this means. God, God thusly loved the world. What? How do we see God's love? That he takes away all of our suffering. That's not what it says. God loves me because I don't face any hardships. That's not what it says. God loved the world thusly that he sent his only son to die. So the picture of God's love for us is not in our experiencing temporal painlessness or sufferinglessness. But rather it's us looking at the cross. So the love of God is seen on the cross. That's, what Jesus, that's where Jesus is pointing us. So if it, how do I know that God loves me? Don't look at your life. You're only gonna find evidence of a lack of love there. And to be sure, there's blessings scattered all over the place too. We can give thanks for all things, and especially as Christians, to push even further, we're actually supposed to give thanks and even have joy in suffering. Rejoice in your sufferings, right? Because God, we recognize that God's working through the suffering to bring about good. Who's rejoicing in their sufferings? Have you ever talked to somebody who's dying and said, you should rejoice in this? Does it actually bring about the result that you're hoping for? No, right? But as a Christian, we're able to see that, I, that even my sufferings are coming to me as a gift. The, the clear biblical examples here would be like um, Joseph. Do you remember Joseph when he was at the bottom of the well from his, being betrayed by his brothers? Um, and then when he finally wake, works his way out of slavery in, in Egypt, then he gets like betrayed by that lady and then thrown into prison. And just like bad stuff after bad stuff after bad stuff after bad stuff. And then at the very, very, very end, at least with Joseph, we get to see, what, what's the famous line? Well, you, you meant this for evil, but God wanted it for good. So God was putting Joseph in the position to feed his family and, and, and sustain the nation of Israel. But we don't always get to see the end of the story like we did for Joseph. And Job is a good example there. Remember when Job, it's like he has everything. He's got the barn and the job and all the money and all the kids. And then like God, the devil says, he only loves you because he's got all this cool stuff. Take away his toys and he won't love you anymore. And so the barn falls and it kills all the kids, kills all the animals. I probably should have escalated this differently. <laughs> the barn collapsed then the animals died and then he, his kids um, so but you see this trial that he was suffering and then his own physical suffering so remember initially God was saying don't hurt his body and the devil comes back and says well he, he's still got faith because his body's fine and so God lets him go after his body God lets the devil go after so what's the difference by the way here uh, who's going after Job the devil, but he's only going after Job because who's allowing him? So from Job's perspective, who's ultimately allowing this? Who's doing, who's causing this? God is, because he could have stopped it. And that's our same logic, by the way. That's why we doubt and, have, and, and get angry with God in the face of our sufferings, isn't it? Same as Job. And so it, then he's, these terrible friends of Job come and they say, Job, the reason why you're experiencing this hardship is you must have done something. And that's our logic sometimes too. God's punishing me for something that I've done. This is a uh, retribution for something. Um, God's teaching me a lesson. So this kind of like, I'm looking at this temporal suffering as some kind of manifestation of God's wrath. The problem is the full wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And, and the scriptures, they pour it out through the dregs. You know the dregs are? It's like when you get one of Brouch's homebrew bottles and you, and you drink it down and there's a, the yeast at the bottom. Right? Or in fact, if you go try to get coffee right now, you will only get a cup full of dregs unless it's been refilled. It's like the powder shoots out of there. Is this refilled? Um, 
so it's, it's the bottom. So, it's, so it's, it's God taking his wrath and pouring it out on Jesus and tapping the, giving it the catch-up spank to get all the, all the wrath out. So it's all poured out on Jesus, which means when I'm facing suffering, it is not the wrath of God because that's all been poured out on Jesus. See? So I'm able to see it as, you know, maybe it's the devil, but God could have stopped it. So that's ultimately an unhelpful way to go. I can't figure this thing out. I know that God loves me though. And I know it's not the wrath of God because that was all poured out on Jesus. So the question is, why is God bringing this suffering? And um, there's a picture, a pastor friend of mine gives, I think beautiful analogy, let's see if I can get it right. So imagine imagine suffering like it's a room that we're in. And we, we see a door, so we're in the room, and as we're in the room, we're suffering. And then there's a door here, and it's uh, above the door is written, why? And we think that if I can, so we run up to the why door. If I have an answer to the why, then I'll get out of the room. So I go up to the door, and the door's locked, and I'm beating on the door and screaming, clawing at the door. If I can just figure out the why, then my su- I'll be out of suffering. But there's another door over here that actually says who. We don't care about that. We want the why door. We're trying to get out the why door. It's distracting us. The who door is a door that opens, but it's not to get us out, but what? Jesus comes in. So the incarnation is Jesus coming into our world and taking upon himself our our sin and all, therefore, all the causes, or all the, all the um, fruit of sin. So all the hardships and suffering that we face, he absorbs into himself and he comes into it and suffers alongside with us. So the, and that's how, that's how Jesus brings comfort to our suffering. We think comforting is getting out the wide door. But really we know that it's not, even if we knew why, it doesn't make the pain any more bearable. Even if you know the answer, it doesn't help. But so the comfort that Jesus chooses to give is not answering the why. He didn't do it for Job, by the way. So Job is all this why, why God? And God says, where were you when I built the earth? He doesn't actually answer the question. We're not, we're not given to know all these things necessarily, always. Joseph, I mean, some, there's certainly biblical models of where we, where we do see why, and we can maybe in some cases see it more clearly, but the comfort that he gives is not in why, but in Jesus coming in the who door and suffering with us. And that's why the disciples of Christ, us, we, are, we talk about suffering as crosses. Did you ever catch that in the scriptures? Jesus, um, the, he t- crosses are talked about before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. But that was, that was when the only crosses that they saw were like when they were coming into Jerusalem, they see like random people being crucified. That was the, it wasn't, if we immediately say, we, we think of Jesus when we read the word cross. That wasn't on the disciples' mind at the time. It was just like terrible suffering. So Christians then are given to see all of our suffering as Jesus having joined himself to us. So we can talk about them as crosses. So my, the, what, I don't know why God is allowing this cross, this suffering, whatever this thing is, but we know that God is with us. He's taken it upon himself and he saw the, the cause. He, he saw the problem. And now because he solved the problem, I'm able to say what I cannot understand, but I just confess, as Paul says here, that he's working all these things toward good. How can this possibly be good? Right? How can the... Um, how can the tornado that he allows to just destroy Joplin, Missouri, that's a dated reference, but uh, whatever town a tornado just totally wipes, wipes out, how is that good? Well, did God not use the tornado to bring all these people to himself? I mean, that's not the way maybe they wanted to go. But we're, I mean, really, they're going to go at some point. God worked through the, he used the tornado to call them home. Yeah, but that's still, that doesn't get God off the hook. We're not trying to get God off the hook, right? We're, we're, we're not going after the why. We recognize that, okay, for whatever reason, God's promised to work this mess toward good. I know it's not evidence of his wrath toward me because it is his love, is the love of God toward me is seen on the cross with Jesus. And that nothing, my suffering isn't changing that point. That's sure.
Um, so God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. So a couple of points. God's love is shown not in the absence of suffering, but in his suffering for us. So we think God, if he, lo- if he loved us, there'd be no suffering. But no, he loves us by suffering himself. Uh, the Christian life is not without suffering. We talk about that. Um, not your best life, no. Let's see, one more. Why suffering? Last paragraph there. This is an unhelpful question. We think that if we knew why, then we'd somehow be comforted and alleviated from the suffering, which is what we finally desire. But the Lord knows there's no comfort for us in why, only doubt. Rather than answering why, the Lord gives us who, the who door, who suffers. Christ suffered for us. He doesn't pull us out of the suffering, but comes into suffering to be with us. That's how he chooses to comfort us. He addresses our problems, sin, death, uh, sin, sickness, and death, not by taking them away. <clears throat> In the world, you will have tribulation, he says. So he enters into it with us and takes it upon himself. He never forsakes us, but he was forsaken for us. Remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he's not forsaking us, but rather he says in Matthew 28, behold, I am with you always. So he's never leaving us alone. He's forsaken for us on the cross and remains with us in our suffering, promising to bring it about for good. So the Christian then is given to simply confess these things that are oftentimes beyond our, are certainly beyond our comprehension. So that's what a confession is. God says it to me and I speak it back, especially when I can't really understand it. The classic example, that's the Athanasian Creed. (laughs) So we, he, sa- he says this, and we say, this, you said this, amen. Even though my life is looking like there's a lot of suffering here, it looks like you don't love me. You said you love me on the cross, but I'm looking at my life and I'm seeing, it feels like I'm alone in this. You said you're with me always. Seems like death is separating me from your love. I'm saying death is simply a door into heaven. Uh, our, our, again, our Lutheran hymns, if you, if you get a chance, we're out, we're out of time here, but um, like hymn 750, I mean, even the hymn of the day, um, stanza six, yet even though I suffer the world's unpleasantness, and, yet, and though the days grow rougher and bring me great distress, that day of bliss divine, which knows no end or measure in Christ, who is my pleasure forever shall be mine. So that Jesus is mine, regardless how this world seems to always bring its unpleasantness to me. Uh, if thou but trust in God to guide thee. So it more, uh, let's see. And don't think amid the fiery trial that God has cast thee off unheard. That he whose hopes meet no denial must surely be of God preferred. Time passes and much change death bring and sets a bound to everything. That's not very comforting. I don't understand that verse. It's too many. <laughs> write these in English. Um, so if you sit down, if you flip through the hymnal, like seven, basically a 700 section of, of uh, anything by Paul Gerhard, you see this theology confessed through song, which gets at why our hymns are so stinking complicated. It's not like one phrase over and over and over again. That's not necessarily bad, but there's a depth, especially to this suffering question. Is there not a depth to this? That you really have to, you can't, you think through it as a Christian, you have room in it, you chew on it, you inwardly digest it. And it's, it's, it needs more than simply God is great. God is awesome. Isn't God good? If, if again, yes, God is good, but why this? So we ought to bring these things together. And that's why the, the hymns. Any, any uh, comments or, or questions? Yeah, go on. I'm not trying to imagine what if our life and my life was perfect? Would I remember I was a dreadful sinner? I think I would. That's great. I wouldn't remember as often that I'm a sinner as I do not. Yeah. Don said if. if if our life was perfect, both to, over, to simplify it, if our life was perfect, we wouldn't need Jesus. If my hands were full of, if my, my hands were full of material possessions, I'd be tempted to not cling on to the cross. So the emptier my hands, and the, this is, this is uh, Jesus loves me, this I know. I am weak, he is strong. The weaker I am, the bigger he is. He is my strength and my weakness. 
So the Lord, that's, I mean, in all suffering, that's the easy why, you could say, that I would be always turned away from myself as my own source of strength, and he alone is my source of strength in all things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very good. So perfection is a gift of the devil. And yet is that not, that's the very thing we pray for. So we, we pray for the absence of the thing that draws us to Jesus. Not to say we should, like, it's good to pray that cancer would go away. And we, we, he te- Jesus teaches us to pray this. But he also says, thy will be done. So we would know that whatever I'm facing, he is, he is bringing it toward his, his will, which is, my, which is toward my good. Good. Uh, yeah, th- Dave. I use that logic to calm myself down when I miss a stoplight. God, God is probably protecting me from getting sideswiped or something. But that, that, and I think that's helpful to a point. It's helpful to remember that at any, at any moment, in fact, J- J- Pastor Emilius, who's spoken to us a couple of times, he lost a, ch- a young child years and years ago. And um, he said that at any point, like you're watching your kids play, and at any point, this kid can trip on a block and fall and hit his head in just a, such a way that breaks his neck. Like it, all these, th- God is pre- preserving us always. And when evil breaks in and death breaks in, he's using it to, to call us to himself. But I, I want to caution in this example, we don't ever want to do is like when you're holding the hand of a dying person, say, it could be a lot worse. <laughs> And that's not obviously not what the devotion is saying, but my point is simply, it's not always the most comforting to say it could be worse, but it is helpful for the Christian to recognize the suffering that we have been spared. It's easy for us to say, our, our, um, we have a roof, or we have Bibles, everywhere. we're very blessed here. It's coffee. We, we throw out coffee at the end of the day. Uh, so we're very, we're, so the Lord's sparing us from many things. We're thankful to be sure. And we pray for God to, you know, uh, always preserve us from these evils. Uh, let, let not our temporal, material uh, blessings get in the way of our faith, but ultimately use our suffering to draw us closer to himself. Good. Well, very good. The Lord be with you.